welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Andrew Gerza, who is an award-winning disability awareness consultant. He has spoken all over the world on sex and disability. His work has been featured everywhere in the media, and he is the host of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. Today, we're going to be speaking about a topic that all too often isn't discussed at all because it makes some people uncomfortable, sex and disability. We will explore why this topic is so important to pull out of the shadows, the impact of disability on sexuality, navigating dating when one has a disability, as well as how we can better meet the sexual health needs of disabled persons. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Andrew, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me today. Thanks so much for being here. So pleased to have you as my guest for this important discussion. So to begin, I'd like to acknowledge that in my work as a sex educator and researcher, I found that there are often a lot of stereotypes about the sexuality of disabled persons, with perhaps the biggest one being that disabled persons are necessarily asexual, which is patently false, right? Uh, Disabled people masturbate, disabled people have sex. And these facts make a lot of people uncomfortable. So why is that? Why is this such a taboo topic of conversation? You know, it's taboo for a couple of reasons, actually. It's taboo because, first of all, we've been taught over the centuries that talking about disability, even before you apply any kind of sexuality or sex to that, is already taboo. The, the, the fact that you would be a proud disabled person, period, is a problem for people. Because you're supposed to live in this narrative that you're depressed and you're sad and you are really upset about being disabled, or you're supposed to work to overcome all of your disabilities all the time. And so we're taught through a lot of narratives that being disabled full stop is a problem. So when you put sex on top of that and the idea that, oh no, disabled people might procreate, that like freaks people out because again, over the centuries, we've also been taught through eugenics that disabled people procreating means possibly more disabled people, which nobody wants, right? So, so there's this, these really long standing, um, cruel narratives as to why sex and disability is so taboo. Right. So it's really kind of two taboos that we're talking about, the taboos around sex, the taboos around disability. And when you put them together, it has sort of this additive effect that makes it an ultra taboo in a lot of ways. Yeah. So why is it important for us to pull this topic away from the margins and discuss it openly? Can you tell us a little bit about that and also a bit about your personal and professional journey and why you devoted your career to shining a light on this subject? Sure, I sure can. So to answer your first question, why we have to move it out of the margins is because it's already out of the margins, but nobody wants to talk about it. Um, If you talk to a lot of disabled people, they're fighting for their access to sexual pleasure. As we know from the World Health Organization, um, sexual pleasure is a human right. 
for everybody, full stop. So why are we so afraid to bring that to disabled people? And so, you know, I think we have to bring it out of the margins because also all of us are going to become disabled at some point Mm -hmm. in our lives, whether that be through an accident, whether that be through old age, or whether that be just through life. A disability is going to befall us in one way or another. And I'm not saying that to be like scary, your disability is coming for you, but it is. It is coming for you and that's okay. And so we need to start talking about it because when you become disabled, you're going to want to have sex. And wouldn't you like to have that information available to you now instead of when, you know, you're dealing with all this other stuff? Wouldn't you like to know that if you want to have a fulfilling sexual relationship when you get older or when you become disabled that it's available to you? I mean, mm-hmm. it should just be something that we're really talking about. And unfortunately, because of all the things I previously mentioned, we're just really scared. Yeah. And so how I guess how that my personal journey with talking about this really came from the fact that I had finished school. I went to Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada for years and years, and I studied the law and the disabled. And I was really planning on being like a law and order, sexy, like lawyer doing all the stuff for like disability human rights. That was my plan. That's what I wanted to do. And then as I was doing my studies, I was also sexually active and I was trying to enjoy sex and be sexy and do all these things. And I, I realized that nobody was talking about being queer and disabled in my space. And I was like, well, this is something that's really key for me because I've been out as gay for years and years. But when I started to try to mobilize my queerness and start actually having sex, I realized there was a shit ton of ableism that people had around it. And I was like, well, no one is talking about this. So I had finished my schooling. I'd finished 10 years of school. I was home one day. I was bored. And I was like, well, you know, I want to talk about this. So I'm just going to start emailing a publication saying, here's what I'd like to talk about. Can I share a story with you? And, you know, publications eventually said yes. And I just said, okay, I guess this is what I do now. And I went and I put it on a card and I said, I'm a disability consultant. Here's what I do. Um... And I want to talk about sex. And so it just kind of went from there. And it's really grown into way more than what I ever thought it would be. It's grown into like a a sex toy company. It's grown into a podcast. It's grown into like notoriety all over the world, which feels weird because I'm really awkward. And like, I'm just a weird, awkward guy that wants to tell my story. So it feels weird that people know who I am all the time. But at the same time, I'm really proud of what I produce. And I'm really proud of that I've been able to t- have these conversations, not only about sex and disability, but disability in general, about how disability feels. Because I don't think when we talk about disability, we talk about, we don't tend to talk about the emotional side of it and what, what it feels like to be disabled, what it feels like to be a wheelchair user, what it feels like to not have access to your sexuality as freely as someone else might. So I think, you know, my work has really, it went from me wanting to talk about queerness to me wanting to be like, let's talk about disability. And my motto has always been, my personal motto has always been, my job is to make disability accessible to everyone and to bring them into my experience in a way that makes them feel supported and helps them to learn something. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of where, where my, my journey kind of started and is right now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the work that you do in this area, because really, there's almost no one else 
doing it and talking about it in the way that you do and making it so accessible for people. And I love that you've been able to branch out and do all of these other things with your career. And it's not just writing and speaking anymore and that you now have a, a sex toy company and these other ways of, you know, creating tangible improvements uh, in the sex lives of disabled persons. So thank you for that work. So what I'd like to talk about next is kind of how disability is addressed in the healthcare system. Because, you know, the impression I get is that a lot of the stereotypes about sexuality and disability and the discomfort that people have talking about this issue, it, it's not limited to the general public. It's also pervasive in healthcare. So let's talk a little bit about sort of physical disabilities and how they're addressed by medical and healthcare providers and how those providers might be failing their disabled patients when it comes to issues of sexuality. What's your take on what's going on there and what can we do to change it? That's a great question. I think that, I mean, do you have five more hours? Because there's, so <laughs> like, there's so many layers to that question that I could go, go off on and so many tangents that we could speak about. But to talk about how, how the healthcare system is failing disabled people, even before we talk about sex, they, you know, I've been hospitalized a fair bit in, over the last year and a half, given just my disability and stuff. And so I've noticed that they don't often have equipment available to help you get from your chair to a, a gurney if you go to the ER. They don't often know how to provide you with proper care if you're a disabled person and you're in the hospital. Um, so I, I don't think it's a, I think it is a failure, but I think it's a failure of education. They're not, medical staff are not properly educated on what it means to be a disabled person. Nor do we see a lot of disabled people in the hospitals or in medical settings working as, you know, doctors and nurses. So when you're a disabled person, you are, and you enter a medical space, you're immediate, immediately confronted with ableism. You're immediately confronted with all of these things because we don't see a representation of ourselves in these settings. I'd love to see a disabled doctor, a disabled nurse, or a disabled you know, even a disabled, um, uh, you know, uh, record taker, that, that would be great to see. We don't see these things when we enter a medical space as disabled people. So we're immediately on guard oftentimes when we enter the medical space. And then how they're failing um, sexual health, I can, I'll just kind of illuminate that with a story. I, about, I want to say six years ago, got a text from a friend who was like, who I had been sleeping with. And he was like, oh, I think um, I caught X. You might want to go get an STD test. So I hadn't been tested for some time. And I went to my GP at the time and said, okay, I want to get a test. And he goes, oh, no, we can't do that here. And I said, but I'm all, I'm, I came all this way. It's like the dead of winter. I'm in a wheelchair. Like, I just need, a, I just need you to do like a couple of blood draws and a urine test and I should be good. He goes, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. And so... I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go to the emergency room then because I naively thought, I'm disabled. I'll go to the emergency room. They'll have everything for me. It'll be fine. So I go there to the ER. I go, I take a bus and I go an hour to go to the ER where it was. And I roll up and I say, hi, I'd just like to get an STD test. And um, I remember the nurse, the, the intake nurse looked at me and said, why would you need one of those? And I wow. just was like, well, because I'm 32 and I 
like to suck dick. No, <laughs> no, but like I'm thirty, I'm thirty two, and I had sex, and I want to get tested, please. And she, you know, she looked me up and down. And they so they sent me to to wait in the hall, and I waited for about an hour and a half, and finally a doctor came up and said and said, "Well, what are you here for?" And I said, "An STD test." And he goes, "Oh, well, you can just go to your GP for that." And I said, "No, no, no." My GP said they wouldn't help me. I need a test. Can you please do it? And so he was like, okay, I guess we could help you. And I was like, you guess? I'm asking for a simple STD panel. Like, what do you mean you guess? And so they did it, but they were so in it. They were like, well, how do you, how, how do we do a blood draw on you? How do we do a urine test on you? Cause you're disabled. And I just sat there thinking like, wow, I just came for a test. And I'm being met with all of this medical ableism from individuals that are supposed to help me. And so it that felt like a huge failing. And I mean, now I have a GP who is much better and who's much more uh, willing to listen to me about my sexual exploits and to get tested properly. But even with her one time, we were doing a test and she said to me, well, did you have anal sex? And I said, oh, no, it was just oral. And she goes, oh, good, because then we'd have to, you know, take you out of your wheelchair and I just thought you know well what if I was the receiving partner of anal sex and I was here for that test what would you do for me and it just like there's so much medical ableism around testing and it reinforces the idea you know that story I share reinforces the idea that we're not supposed to have sex it is it is so uncommon for these professionals to see a disabled person asking for a proper STI test that they were like they were confused and that's terrifying as somebody who has a lot of sex with a lot of you know different people and I'm I'm very conscious of my sexual health but I do want to know that if I if I need to get tested there it should be available to me and that those experiences felt really inaccessible yeah i mean that's just unreal you know that's something that you would think would be as simple and routine as an sti test could turn into such a production it's just unacceptable but i think that you know a big part of this does stem from a lack of education that our healthcare providers get when it comes to sexuality issues for diverse populations in general i mean when you look at when you look at the statistics on how much sex ed there is in the course of a four-year med school program, you know, it's only about two to three hours per year on average, right? Wow, um, that's it? That's it. And wow. so you can just imagine like for a doctor who spends four years in medical school, they, they might come out with just 10 to 12 hours of sex education in total. And that's supposed to teach them about everything (laughs) sex related. So you can imagine how when it comes to uh, diversity issues within sexuality, and for example, uh, dealing with sexuality issues for disabled patients and uh, dealing with sexuality issues for LGBTQ patients. And, you know, for people in all of these different groups, it's just, it's a neglected topic and it's just not represented in the curriculum. And so in a lot of ways, 
healthcare providers have to take it upon themselves to get the additional education they need around these issues, which is uh, part of the reason why I teach a lot of continuing education training for counselors and sex therapists, because it's not like they're getting much better uh, education around these issues in the work that they do either. Sex education is just, it's, it's neglected in so many of these professional careers where we're entrusting people to take care of our sexual health. And so I think educational reform is certainly part of this, but also for providers taking responsibility for going out and getting the additional education they need is is a big part of it too. Yeah, I would agree with you. I'd also say to that two things. I'd say the fact that it isn't included in the educational piece speaks to just overarching ableism and erasure of disabled bodies and diverse bodies in general which just tells you how white, cis, and, and male the, the enable body, the medical profession probably is. Um, <laughs> and then I think also, I think that, that, that medical professionals need to admit that they're scared. I think the first way we take responsibility for this stuff is to admit as medical providers, you have a lot of ableism around it. And I don't say that to be like, oh my God, you're an ableist, like, fuck you. I mean it to be like, you have ableism, let's talk about it. Because I think everyone, whether you're disabled or not, can be discriminatory against disabled people. Believe me, I've worked in this in, in this area for, you know, 10 years professionally, and then I've been disabled my whole life. I have definitely, for sure, without question, said ableist and done ableist things, without question. So I think it's important for the doctors to recognize and to have some understanding that they're afraid of it and that's okay. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means they have shit to work on. Yeah. No, and I think that's really well put. So we talked a little bit about physical disabilities and kind of how they're viewed and treated, but something else I'd like to dive into is intellectual disabilities, because this is a topic that is just almost never discussed. And these individuals face a whole other set of issues and it's not just that their sexual health needs aren't being addressed. In in many cases, they're actively being denied any type of sexual or romantic life because they're often deemed to be unable to consent to sex. And the argument is usually that they can't comprehend the risks, so therefore they can't provide consent. But not all intellectual disabilities are the same, which makes taking a one-size-fits-all approach like this highly problematic. And as an example, you know, I've heard stories about couples where both partners have an intellectual disability, but they're married, they've received sex education, they can comprehend risk, but they can't find a group home that will allow them to live together because the group homes have these one-size-fits-all rules that prohibit sex. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts and your take on this and just how do you think we need to change the way that we think about sex and intellectual disabilities? I think we need to, again, start recognizing first and foremost that we're afraid of people with intellectual disabilities because we think, unfortunately, in our society, we think if you have an intellectual disability, you are less than. And we know that's wrong on its face. But if you spend time with somebody who's never experienced someone with an intellectual disability, you'll see them kind of run the gamut of ableism where they don't know what to do and they get all awkward and it's, you know, they start talking extra slow and they start 
hi, how are you today? And it's like, no, no, you can talk to them like a person. They're, they're a person. Please stop doing that. And I think, you know, I'll be quite blunt. When I was younger and I would see somebody with an intellectual disability, my very first thought as a disabled person was, oh, I'm so glad I'm not that disabled. But that goes to show that that even I, who experienced disability daily, had some of my own ableism around it. So I think the first thing we need to do here is recognize that we are we truly believe in our society that people with intellectual intellectual disabilities are less than. I mean, not only is that is that very very apparent in in you know sex ed or sexuality rules that people make, it's also very apparent in the way we're able to pay certain disabled people less than minimum wage to do to do jobs. I mean it's it's very invasive this idea that intellectual disabled people are less than or not. So I want to quash that right off the bat. They're not less than. They're just as equal or better than most of us. Um <laughs> and then and then, you know, to speak to these sexuality rules, I think it really troubles me when I read about when I read sex education manuals and I see things like when whenever they reach the disabled part, they go, make sure you talk to the person about risk. Make sure you explain to them that they could be raped. Make sure you explain to them they could be hurt. Like, yes, that's a possibility. And and the the rates of somebody with an intellectual disability being sexually abused or sexually assaulted are much higher, unfortunately. But there's another side to that. Why aren't they being taught about pleasure? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they being taught what feels good? Why aren't they being taught that it's okay to masturbate and to fill your body? And to, like, I think it's really kind of abhorrent and disgusting that our society would relegate them to not having sex or a life. That's, I mean, I think it's abhorrent for any disabled person, but particularly for intellectually disabled people who can fully understand. Maybe they can, maybe they just understand in a different way. Maybe they have a different way of learning or knowing. But I think if we taught intellectually disabled people about pleasure on top, like along with risk, because I mean, they need to be taught both, obviously, but teach them that it's okay to be, to feel sexy. It's okay to have a sexuality. Like it's really kind of disturbing that we're in 2020. And I mean, you're not the first podcast that I've been on in this year. It's been like, what do we do about intellectually disabled <laughs> people and sexuality? Like we, this shouldn't be something we're so like, how do we fix this? Well, the, the way we fix it is to realize that we're all ableist fuckers and we need to stop it we need to it's really bad of us and we have to stop and realize that they are sexual beings and that's okay yeah so stop being an ableist fucker um yeah, I, yeah, I pretty much pretty much <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean i think everything that you say there is, is 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 so important and you know we could do a whole podcast just on this topic because there are so many different layers and, and and levels of it to explore but it's just something that i find that no one ever talks about at all and it's just an issue that just keeps getting relegated to the margins it's not even on the margins it's it's so far off uh in the minds of so many people and so you know when we're having these discussions about sexuality and disability they can't just be about physical disabilities we also need to consider the intellectual disabilities as well and the the unique issues there and how we change and, and work on all of this at the same time. 
You know, something interesting that I found in the course of my work is that the way that sex and disability are viewed, and this is true for both physical and intellectual disabilities, um, seems to vary pretty drastically across cultures. So, for example, in the United States, persons with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia are often deemed unable to consent to sex at all even with their own spouse. And I've even heard of cases of people in the U.S. who have been arrested and charged with sexual assault just because they've continued to have a sexual relationship with their spouse after their spouse was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But by contrast, when I used to teach a study abroad course in the Netherlands on sex and culture, I had the sex worker who would come into my class and she specialized in treating clients with physical and intellectual disabilities. And that was so mind-blowing for my students in so many ways, because in many of these cases, her clients were getting government subsidies to visit her, because in the Netherlands, disabled persons can actually petition their government to, to pay for funds for sex workers. But you know, one of the other really interesting stories she told us was about how she has a client who lives in a care facility, he has Alzheimer's, and his family, his children, actually pay for him to have regular visits with a sex worker because they think it's good for his mental health. And in fact, the nurses at the facility are totally on board with this, and they look forward to her visits because it improves his mood so much for the next couple of days after she visits. So... I'm I'm curious, have you kind of seen this cross-cultural variability in attitudes as well, where sexuality is considered more of, and, and pleasure are considered to be more of a right for disabled persons in some places than in others? I mean, I've heard about the thing in Denmark, and I have to say, as somebody who actively employs sex workers, I get most of my sex right now from some sex workers that I see, you know, before COVID happened, I was hooking up with my sex worker maybe two to three times a, a month. And it was one of the, it, ha, it has been and continues to be such a valuable experience, not just to get my rocks off, but also to feel sexy. And so just to quickly go off on a tangent on that, like I think sex work should be funded by governments in, in North America. It's such a valuable resource for disabled people to to you know not only experience sexuality but also to be to be really super slutty if they want to be and to be to let all these feelings and all this emotion and all this stuff that they've been told to tamp down you know with consent and love with the worker let that out and let that let that be exposed and and for me having worked with sex workers now for almost 4 years off and on pretty pretty regularly before covid I think sex work for disabled people is great. I will also say, though, that I think it's important to remember that sex workers are not the saviors for disabled people. So, yes, I I love what they do and I support them and what they do. But I also want to make clear that just because a non-disabled sex worker is sleeping with a disabled client, it doesn't mean that they're, like, saving them from a poor, pitiable life. They are just helping the disabled person facilitate a good time and also like they are learning about disability in a completely different way so i think that's um i don't i haven't seen enough of this acceptance of sex and disability throughout um western culture and kind of in north america i don't see it a lot but i have heard about the thing in denmark and i'm so jealous i want it here 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know how common it is in, in various cultures for there to be that sort of higher level of recognition of, you know, sexuality and disability and why it's important and the role that, um, you know, sex work can, can play in that. I just know from teaching a study abroad course there that, that, that seems to be at least one example of how, you know, these attitudes can and do vary. And maybe there are things that we can learn from, from the way that some other cultures approach this. Uh, but I have heard also just tying in with what you've said that many, disabled persons do hire sex workers. And part of the reason that they do so is because they want a, a non-judgmental partner, right, with whom they can explore their sexuality. And, and this ties in with the next topic I wanted to address, which is disabilities and dating and how, you know, that's a whole other issue. And I think part of what propels many disabled persons to to visit sex workers is because the dating scene is something that is is really challenging in a lot of ways. And I have a semi-personal story in that I'm very close with someone who acquired a major disability later in life. And they were someone who had been very active on the dating scene. They never had a problem lining up dates. Um, but after their disability, they found it nearly impossible to find a date. And every time they brought up their disability, they would get blocked or they would get ghosted. And this is something that's been really hard on their mental health. And they've really been struggling with that issue of how do they disclose a disability to someone. And now that they have this really high fear of rejection, like how, how to deal with that dating scene. So what is your advice to disabled persons who are dating and, you know, specifically around that issue of disclosing a disability and, you know, dealing with the rejection that often occurs because so many people are uncomfortable with disabilities? That's such a loaded question. Do you have another hour? Like, do we have all, it's so much, so much time, but you can listen to more of that on my podcast, Disability After Dark. No. Um, but to, to answer your question, you know, I would say to your friend and to anybody who's experiencing those feelings and that fear, lean the fuck into your disability. Be as disabled as you need to be, and that's okay. If someone's going to be an ableist asshat towards you or say something ableist out of a miseducation or an uneducation of the thing, there's nothing you can do. You can't change how they feel. You can't. You shouldn't try to, like, make them... See, you shouldn't push too hard. If they're going to continuously be ableist towards you, then 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 you have to just move on. Particularly for me in gay male spaces, um, I'm a I'm a man that's attracted to men. So in gay male spaces, it's so the aesthetic is white, cis, muscular, big dick, down to fuck, able-bodied. And if you don't hit any of those mark, if you if you hit all of those markers except one, you're not accepted. If you happen to be overweight and you are still white, cis, able-bodied, and queer, you're not accepted. If you happen to be, you know, a black queer person um, who's cis, you're, you are often not accepted. Not accepted. If you happen to be trans, queer, able-bodied, and then if you pile on disability under that, everyone's like, oh, no, no, I don't know how to deal with that. No way. So I think we have to... I, for me personally, I, I lean the fuck into my disability because I have no choice. I can't hide from it. I can't, I can't look like I'm not a wheelchair user. So why am I going to pretend like I'm not? And why am I going to try to make somebody feel 
overly comfortable. Like, of course I want to bring them into my experience with disability, but I don't want to deny the fact that I'm a disabled person and I'm learning. It's a, it's a forever learning process. I'm learning to be okay with the fact that I'm disabled and hot and that that's okay. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, everything you say is so true. And, and especially about, you know, the LGBTQ community, you know, for as much as it's a community that prides itself on being inclusive of diversity, it's really not inclusive of all forms of diversity, especially not when it comes to, you know, disabilities. Um, yeah, I, th- there's work that needs to be done <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, you know, so much work. And if you're going to hold yourself up as, um, you know, sort of a model of, uh, I accept everyone, I'm inclusive, then you know, you're really going to back that up with, with your actions. But, you know, sticking with the dating topic, I'm curious about sort of the flip side of this for an able-bodied person who is dating and they have a suitor who discloses a disability, what should they know? You know, what kinds of questions or responses are appropriate and which ones are inappropriate? What's, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, well, if I'm thinking about my experience on Grinder, having talked to other, other able-bodied people and wanting to get that able-bodied dick, I <laughs> would highly recommend <laughs> that you don't say things like, hey, so does your dick work after I disclose that I'm disabled? Um, that's really not appropriate. I would say, honestly, I would say the the sexiest thing that you can say to a disabled person on the apps is, hey, I think you're really hot. I noticed you disclosed disability. Thank you so much. I don't know a lot about it. I'm going to say some able shit, but I'd like to learn more. Is that okay? Like, I think we need to be really upfront with the fact that disability and sexuality is something that many of us, many able-bodied people don't have experience with. And if you're upfront about that, and if I, like, if you tell me that, you think I'm attractive, but you don't know lots and you want to learn. And if I think you're attractive and you're worth a good blowjob, then I'll think that I'll consider it. No, I'm kidding. But like, no, but like if, if you're honest about that and you're honest about the fact that you don't know and you want to learn. And if I want to teach you, I will. Like I always say about disability discourse that it's never my responsibility to teach you, but it is my, my opportunity. So I never mm-hmm. have to tell you about my disability. I never have to disclose anything. But if I can use my lived experience to make you learn about disability while also having great sex with you, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah, and I think that that's, that's just great advice in, in general in terms of the way that we approach relationships is you know how we communicate our liking and interest to another person and telling them that you know we're going to say the wrong fucking thing sometimes uh, but we're willing to learn and to, to do better and to you know cut each other some slack so we're almost out of time but there's one other topic that i wanted to quickly dive into which is sex tech and how sex tech is changing some of the conversations that we're having around sex and disability so what does the future look like you know how is technology altering and how will it alter in the future um, the sexual and intimate lives of disabled persons? And, you know, what, what's your, your outlook on that? Well, not that I want to give a shameless plug about the stuff that I do, but along with being a, a, <laughs> an independent disability awareness consultant, I am the chief disability officer at a new company my sister and I have co-founded, which is called Handy. 
um, which is a, a, a sex toy company for and by disabled people, which is putting pleasure within reach for disabled people. And we started the company, we started the conversation around the company about two years ago. I was sitting with my sister on the beach in Australia and we were talking, she was asking me about sex tech and she was asking, she's like, Hey, you work in sex and disability, right? And I was like, Oh yeah. And she's like, do you, well, do any of the toys on the market work for you? And I showed her my hands. I have spastic CP hands, showed her my hands. Said, well, no, cause I can't grasp the toy and I can't do any of that. And so we started talking more about it. I was telling her more about my experience and she goes, well, I work in marketing. Why don't we make a toy? And I kind of just gave her a side eye and I was like, hmm, make a sex toy with my sister. That feels kind of weird. But the more and more we started talking <laughs> about it and we, and we put the idea out on Reddit to a bunch of disabled blogs and disabled message boards saying, hey, here's our idea. What do you think of this? And we did some research. 92% of the people we talked to said, we want a toy like this for us on the market. And so many people said, I have hand limitations. I can't self-pleasure. I can't masturbate. The toys on the market don't work for me. I want something that works for me. So we realized that it wasn't just about me anymore because I too have lost the ability to masturbate just because of my disability. We realized it was about changing the world. And it isn't just for disabled people, even though that's our core market. It is for people who are aging or people who want to use their hands for other stuff during sex. So we've decided to create the first hands-free sex toy for and by disabled people. Wow. I love that. Um, so is is it out yet or when is it coming it's, out? Do you have a timeline? We're for hoping it? pre-sales will be ready. We're hoping it'll be on shelves by May 2021. And you can go to that's handy with an I dot co and see all of it, like kind of our preliminary designs and what we're looking into. And it's 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 something in terms of sex tech that even I never saw. My sister and I both saw our final designs from our design team. We're working with a great design team out of Melbourne, Australia. And they showed us our the initial designs and both of our jaws went, oh wow, this is a game changer. It's like if a pool noodle and a body pillow had a love child. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued. I, <laughs> I'm going to be looking that up as soon as we're done with this conversation because that sounds exciting. So we're really um, really excited about that. But we do have an offer though before that comes out as part of Handy. I just want to do a quick shameless plug. But we do have an offer is during our kind of preliminary discussions about sex and disability with the people we talked to about this toy. Everybody started telling us stories about their experience of sex and disability. So we decided to take those stories and curate them into a book. So we right now, for pre-order, have a book of 50 artists, disabled people, activists from all over the world who've written us, who've answered questions like, what is the best disabled sex you ever had? Or what is the worst disabled sex you ever had? Or what is the sexiest thing anyone's ever said to you about your disability? So we really took this conversation of sex and disability, which tends to start and stop after um, how do you have sex? And we went underneath that question and said, how does sex and disability really feel? So we are extra excited about this book because it is, it is a collection of stories that will be there for the non-disabled community to learn something, but also for the disabled community to finally be able to see themselves and see these experiences of 
disability and sexuality that go deeper than how do you have sex in print for the next generation. So we are so excited and and you can pre-order that right now also on our website in ebook, audiobook, which I which I do part of the audiobook stuff. So if you want to hear my dulcet tone some more, you can hear it on that. And then you can also get a hardcover on our site as well. Well, that all sounds great. I am super excited to check out the book. And I also fun to talk to another um, audiobook narrator because I recorded the audiobook for my own book a couple of years ago. Isn't it so boy, hard? Was, yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> it's so hard. I, I mean, for, first of all, I had to audition to narrate my own audiobook, wow. which was <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> um, but there, you know, there was so much pressure and you have to keep stopping and starting and going, oh gosh and you got these producers in your ear who are you know telling you you've sped up a little bit too much and so you got to go back and redo all these sections and so for this seven to eight hour audiobook i'm sitting in a studio for almost 20 hours and it was one of the most physically and emotionally demanding things i've ever done in my life oh yeah Thank you so much for this conversation, Andrew. It was truly a pleasure to talk to you. I've um, been following your work for a few years. Actually, I learned about it as a result of a class project I had assigned in one of my courses where students had to explore a a sexual diversity topic and do a whole presentation on it. And so I had one student who wanted to do something on sex and disability and he brought in some of your work and some of your videos and it was just, the class loved it, but that's how I first learned about you and started following your work. And so I just wanted to to say thank you for the work that you do because, you know, no one else is really doing it. And I think it's so important. Oh, well, thank you so much. For, it's, I always kind of like blush when someone says, oh, I heard about you. Like, again, it's so weird because <laughs> all of my work is done from my bedroom and I do it here. Like, I don't, I don't think it's going to go anywhere and I never think it's going to make an impact. So the fact that it is and people are using what I've said for like a class thing is both really daunting and also really cool. Um, so I, yeah. I appreciate that. And, you know, I've been following you for a long time too. And I like, I know who you are because you're pretty much everywhere in in sex discussions. So when you reached out, I was like, okay, sure, I'll be on your show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, fun fact, I also do most of my work from my bedroom too. So um, that's, that's where all the sex research and education is being done these days. Anyway. Yeah, totally. So thank you again so much. And can you tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you? I know you told us about uh, the handy, but just if they want to learn more about your work and, uh, you know, get in contact with you, where can they go to find out more? Sure. They can go to andrewgerza.com or they can follow me. I'm really way more active on social media than on my website. So if you go to it's Andrew Gerza on Twitter or Instagram, I post a lot of stuff around disability rights, disability activism sexuality and also if you want to listen to my award-winning podcast you can go to disability after dark on any podcast player and i do stuff around it was initially a sex podcast it's now expanded to just a disability everything podcast because i want to shine a light on all these things so you can hear me there as well Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you again for your time. Thank you as well to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on Apple, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And thank you again for listening. Until next time.